0: Hi everyone. This is um, our second edition of Himal Spaces. I'm Raisa, Uh, I'm the deputy editor at Himal South Asian. And we're here to talk about the no confidence motion that was passed in Pakistan and the ousting of Imran Khan. Um, You know, it's been a turbulent time in the region, as I was saying, um, in Colombo, uh, where I am now. There have been protests calling for the ousting um, of our president as a result of an economic crisis. Um, we're seeing a resurgence of uh, communal violence in India as well, and of course, the situation in Pakistan, uh, which is why we're here today. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to hand over now to our engagement editor, Aymun, and she's going to introduce the speakers. Um, in the meantime, if you do have any questions, uh, please feel free to DM us. Thank you.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second Himal South Asian Space session. Today, we will be in conversation with Umair Javed, Reena, Reema Umar, and Gibran Nasir about the political crisis currently unfolding in Pakistan. Umair Javed is an assistant professor of politics and sociology at Lahore University of Management Sciences. His research interests include political participation, socioeconomic development and urban public life in South Asia. Reema Umar is a Pakistani lawyer and human rights professional from Lahore, who currently works as a legal advisor for the International Commission of Jurists and contributes as an analyst to public discussions about issues surrounding rule of law and social justice in Pakistan. Our third speaker, Jibran Nasir, is a Pakistani civil rights activist and a lawyer based in Karachi. He contested the national and provincial elections as an independent candidate in 2018. Let's start from the very beginning. And Reema, I will direct my first question to you. Um, So let's start about, let's talk about the doctrine of necessity that has haunted Pakistani politics for so long. So can you give us a little bit of history of it for our non-Pakistani audience and how does the recent Supreme Court decision fit in light of it?
2: Okay, sure. Thank you so much, Eman, and uh, thank you everyone for joining in. It's a really good opportunity to learn about what's happening in Pakistan because I believe sometimes how the media in various South Asian countries covers certain issues in Pakistan, it's quite myopic. Um, so it's good that that we're taking this opportunity to speak about this more and to, from various aspects that are not usually covered. So the doctrine of necessity in Pakistan uh, since independence, this has been... Um, It's not just in Pakistan, in other countries as well. We've had a series of illegal, unconstitutional acts, mostly by military dictators, but also others that have been legitimized by the Supreme Court, citing national interest, necessity, public interest and so forth. Um, Often this has happened after military coups. Where, where when military coups are, are, are um, courts find that they're unconstitutional, extra constitutional or supra constitutional, but they still hold that the steps taken by the dictator after have legitimacy for the sake of larger interest. So what happened this time was... Um, Pakistan's constitution has a particular provision regarding no-confidence motions. Uh, Most parliamentary democracies have such provisions, which is that if the prime minister ceases to hold the confidence of the National Assembly, he no longer remains the prime minister, and his cabinet also no longer is part of the government. So this no-confidence motion, uh, using this provision, the opposition filed a no-confidence motion against the former prime minister, and uh, they, had, they showed that they had the requisite numbers because some of the political parties that were allied with Imran Khan's ruling party um, had said publicly that they no longer support the PTI. So we could see that they have the numbers. And when first you had the speaker and the deputy speaker, they delayed the vote so that uh, even though the constitution stipulates that votes have to happen in the maximum of seven days after the no confidence motion is tabled uh, and is accepted by the speaker. But we had continuous delays uh, and we could see, And and finally, when the vote of no confidence was going to take place, the deputy speaker said that there are allegations that this no confidence is supported by a foreign conspiracy, By a foreign power. This is why using my powers as the Deputy Speaker, I will not let this vote go ahead. This is this was shocking to most people because there's no provision of such um, delays in the constitution. I mean the rules, the laws, the constitutional provisions were really clear that the Speaker had to take a vote. Uh, But and citing loyalty to the country and loyalty to the nation and foreign conspiracy, there was absolutely no room to do that in the in the rules. But still, uh, this was done. And this is why the Supreme Court took suo motus, which is they take notice of a particular situation on their own motion. And there were also petitions before the Supreme Court to say what had happened, what this did was unconstitutional. What also happened was, um, this might be a bit technical to follow, but once uh, in, under Pakistan's constitution, once the prime minister has a vote of no confidence against him or her, um, they can no longer dissolve the National Assembly. Now, this is very important because the prime minister enjoys this power to dissolve the National Assembly and call for fresh elections for the National Assembly because they enjoy the confidence of the majority of the National Assembly. And once the vote of no confidence is in place, it calls into question that confidence so this is why the constitution is clear that a prime minister with a vote of no confidence pending against them can not dissolve the national assembly so after the speaker uh, said i'm not going to take this vote and i'm going to uh, he dismissed the motion of the no, of no confidence he again uh, the prime minister citing the speaker's ruling dissolved the National Assembly, and a few hours later, the President accepted his advice, and the National Assembly was dissolved. So let me just repeat for the clarity of our listeners, it's a bit technical, I understand, my apologies, but the Speaker had no constitutional authority to dismiss the vote of no confidence. He had to take that vote because the maximum of seven days had passed. Second, he dismissed the vote of no confidence, which... Uh, the prime minister, former prime minister, took to mean that the bar that the Constitution placed on him from dissolving the National Assembly was no longer enforced because the resolutions stood, uh, the motion stood dismissed and he uh, dissolved the National Assembly. And then the president, who has to act on advice of the prime minister, dissolved the National Assembly. So this is what happened. The court, everyone could see, I think pretty much every constitutional expert, jurist, lawyer. Uh, in Pakistan could see that the Speaker's actions were unconstitutional, and consequently the Prime Minister had no power, no authority to dissolve the National Assembly. But the question was, will the Supreme Court, like in past judgments, say that yes, the Prime Minister had no power, the Speaker had no power, but since the Assembly stood dissolved, they would say, okay, in larger interest, uh, let's just go into fresh elections. So that was the concern. And um, very personally, I mean, it was uh, traumatizing for me to hear some of the remarks being made in court and to see lawyers once again arguing that the court should bring back the doctrine of necessity because the only solution to this deadlock and this crisis was fresh election. And this is something students of law in Pakistan, you know, we read our constitutional history and we see how much damage this doctrine of necessity uh, has done to, to just the sanctity of the constitution in Pakistan because instead of penalizing or punishing those who subvert the constitution, this doctrine has meant that you reward them because what they want in some way or the other to stay in power and to take certain unconstitutional actions, even though the Supreme Court recognizes that they came into place or those actions were uh, unconstitutional to begin with, they give them legitimacy. So the question was, what is the point of a constitution then if you're going to keep on uh, bringing this doctrine back from the grave? But um, very fortunately, uh, we had a five-zero decision from the Supreme Court, which not only declared that the Speaker's ruling and consequently the Prime Minister's decision to dissolve the National Assembly were unconstitutional, the Supreme Court also uh, said that the National Assembly no longer stands dissolved, so it was revived. And also the Supreme Court said that the vote of no confidence should go ahead. They gave a particular date for it, and they said it has to happen before that date. And they said that the Speaker cannot prorogue the session of the National Assembly until the next is elected. So, uh, I'm sorry, I went into too much detail, but I think all of these details were important. After that, what happened? We all know a new prime minister was it, and uh, the PTI members from the National Assembly submitted their resignations. Um, so this is what happened in the month of April. Okay,
1: let's let's begin from where we left off. Jibran, uh, I was asking you. Um, how is the civil society and the wider public reacting to what's happening in Pakistan? Is, is there a broad understanding of the legality of the events that unfolded? And as Imran Khan suggests, that the courts opening up at midnight, has that somehow kind of impacted the public perception of how this process went about?
3: as Alaikum, and thank you for inviting me. Um, on a lighter note, I believe the space is representative of our political crisis. It appears to be very uncertain. Um, uh, visz- your question. Um, Pakistan has always been about uh, personality worship and cult worship, whereas our politics are concerned, but our leaders have been self-absorbed or magnmonics to varying degrees. Now one does talk about the politics of Imran Khan where uh, the entire politics is about associating credibility to an individual. whatever he touches uh, turns holy, not just gold. Um, one example is the current election commissioner of Pakistan who was a nominee of the PTI, but now when it seems uh, that certain proceedings are pending before the ECP, which may result in either the PTI being fined or even a reference of its dissolution may be moved, the proceedings are around allegations that PTI hit certain amount of prohibited foreign funding uh, sources of foreign funding. Um, then suddenly the ECP's uh, commissioner's credibility has been brought into question. Uh, similarly, uh, when one talks about this, I don't think that it is all right to associate all blame on Khan. It's a little bit he did not reinvent the wheel. Uh, one cannot uh, lose sight of the kind of politics which uh, MQM uh, indulged in in Karachi and under the auspices of Altaf Hussain, who I believe was a much bigger cult, and uh, speaking against him often invited uh, a death sentence. So these things have been observed in Pakistan, but it begs the question, uh, how are these personalities allowed to hold so much space and power, and how, much, uh, how are they allowed to fortify their narrative? Um, then we cannot lose sight of the intervention and the experiments and the trial and error uh, being done in the labs of uh, GHQ, that's the general headquarters of our army, with its constant interventions and new guinea pigs experiments. Uh, with our democracy uh, where either through somebody uh, who uh, is able to win public support uh, by building a narrative around Islam, or if somebody is able to build a narrative uh, around ethnicity, or if somebody is able to build a narrative about uh, being a reactionary force and uh, polluting politics with allegations which are mostly never substantiated and it's all about hitting the credibility of political opponents and in the process the entire ethos of democracy Um, and uh, these kind of people with these kind of uh, tools which they use for exploitation are patronized, are supported. And uh, over time, all these uh, issues or all these polarizing uh, issues around which politics is done um, have become a poison which uh, refuses to leave uh, our body. Um, Coming now to about the judges opening the courts, I believe uh, uh, Rima would be able to better assist assist the audience here. But uh, I, again, uh, am a bit in doubt about why it happened because... Uh, It's part of a law that uh, presumptive proceedings cannot take place, something which is not before the courts of law cannot be ruled upon. And in anticipation of a petition being filed, it is very questionable why the courts opened. And I believe that was a political move by Imran Khan uh, at the point of time where he kind of tried to show that uh, who uh, in Pakistan really controls the reins of power and for whom the courts can open for night. And he has created that doubt amongst the masses. There are no two questions about that. And it is for the courts to come forward and dispel that notion. Uh, Unfortunately, um, the courts have also been politicized because... Um, the same courts, the same bench which uh, ruled upon the VNC. And uh, by the way, the vote of no confidence was a political but as well as a legal question. It was, and when a legal question is involved, things are determined by uh, procedures and the constitution and uh, the various precedents uh, developed by the courts uh, to preserve the constitution. So uh, at that juncture, the Supreme Court did come uh, to the help of uh, the United Opposition. Uh, by is holding the interpretation of the constitution, which at that particular point of time was also politically convenient to the United Opposition, which now has later formed government. Uh, but the current crisis, uh, which is regarding early elections is a political crisis, not a legal crisis, because not holding uh, early elections is no illegality and calling for early elections is there's no illegality involved if the proper procedure is followed. So it is primarily a political question and the entire onus right now falls on um, the the current incumbent government. Uh, But vis-a-vis the fact that uh, your question uh, regarding uh, the court's opening Uh, Again, uh, all these things are being brought forward and one can also not lose sight of the fact that uh, a big uh, question has also been raised uh, vis-a-vis PTI's foreign funding uh, in relation to Abraaj Capital and its uh, founder, Arif Nakvi, who is pending extradition uh, to the US uh, and is facing allegations of fraud and racketeering and theft. And uh, PTI has often claimed that he is a big source of the funds PTI has received. Uh, Friendship with Imran Khan and Arif Nakvi is also known. So I do not know that if there was a U.S. conspiracy, at least what is visible to the side, there is none. Uh, But at least for Imran Khan's voter, he has again sowed that seed in the minds of the people that if tomorrow, even an international court or a court in the United States finds some misdemeanors or embezzlement of funds or anything which may probably link Uh, all the way down to PTI, or even if it is regarding the credibility of Arik Naqvi, who is one of the biggest donors and funders of PTI, Imran Khan has already played that card as well. Uh, Now, what is uh, to be seen, or uh, what is the biggest question, is how the current incumbent government is going to resist all of this uh, rallying which is being done by Imran Khan, and all these propagandas. It is a waiting game patience is key here back in 2014 uh when the establishment was very much tilted towards khan uh the noon league the pakistan muslim league noon uh Nawaz group has exhibited um, a considerable amount of patience for six months we resisted and they resisted, resisted with uh, peace uh, without uh, reacting violently uh or uh, using or arbitrary use of state power so it again is that question but uh the kind of politics Imran Khan is right now uh, uh, promoting, encouraging or the kind of behavior being instigated by members of PTI, uh, it is a very, very reasonable and foreseeable danger that an incident may happen where uh, normal citizens, ordinary citizens on the opposite uh, sides of uh, opposing, opposing political views may um, have an encounter which may turn violent, which may get out of hand, and something like that may trigger events which can get out of control. So, and in the process, the fact that everything's, uh, credibility of everything has been questioned, be it the media, be it the judiciary, be it the existing government, or be it the establishment, uh, it would be very difficult to convince the voters and supporters of Imran Khan, which are there in considerable numbers, uh, on what to believe in and what to hold by thank you
1: thank you jibran uh, reema can you follow up on the question of the legality of opening courts at night and also the claims coming from uh, former uh, pti ministers that you know this was an infringement upon parliamentary supremacy in pakistan mm. so does pakistan have parliamentary supremacy given that there is a codified constitution that the parliament was in violation of yeah
2: thank you Uh, Which court are we talking about? Because two courts apparently opened at night on the 9th of April. One was the Supreme Court and one was the Islamabad High Court. The Supreme Court opening makes sense to me uh, because the Supreme Court passed an order and not just the Supreme Court itself, but every institution of the state. So the Supreme Court passed a judgment, uh, passed an order, and the order clearly said that the vote of no confidence has to take place before the 9th of April, we could see on that day that the former ruling party, the PTI, was creating all sorts of excuses, and they had no intention to let that vote of no confidence happen. So for me, it makes complete sense that the court opened at night to ensure that its own order is uh, implemented. So that is the Supreme Court. And I see that a lot of people are asking questions Honestly, had the court opened the next day at 9 a.m. or noon, they would have asked similar questions. They would have created similar propaganda. So I don't buy too much into that. The other court that opened was the Islamabad High Court. And there the dynamic is a bit different because apparently there was a petition uh, which questioned the former prime minister's decision to fire someone or appoint someone uh, to the position of chief of army staff. Now, this is something that remains debatable to date because uh, the BBC Urdu did a story on this and they actually, uh, the the story has quite um, uh, outlandish, but in Pakistan's context, uh, context, perhaps plausible uh, details uh, as to what happened that night, who met the prime minister, who was behind this uh, Islamabad high court opening and so on. Uh, And they were very clear, allegations made that the establishment, in particular Chief of Army Staff, General Bajwa, was involved. And this is why the Islamabad High Court opened. Now, a lot of people, and myself included, I think that would, if if that is the case, then then that means that the court, Islamabad High Court, uh, went out of its, did something that was not in its jurisdiction. This was not a legal question. I don't think the court has any business uh, to stop the former prime minister from in, in, in anticipation of a decision that might or might not be made uh, open at night. And, and to, so that was quite bizarre. However, the next day we had, uh, you know, a lot of people countered this claim, including from the former PTI uh, cabinet. So I'm not sure. And the ISPR, of course, for them, it it makes sense, I suppose, that they, of course, would deny any such thing happened. But also people from PTI continue to deny it happened. So I don't know uh, what happened in Islamabad, and this why the Islamabad High Court opened, that is more questionable for me. But the Supreme Court opening to to ensure that its own order is implemented, I think that was fundamental. It was very important. Because what is the point of an order uh, when it's not, if it's not going to be implemented? And let's also not forget that Pakistan had no real government for many days in that week, when the Supreme Court was hearing this case, there was complete uncertainty as to what the future holds. Are we going into fresh election? Are we not? Who is the Prime Minister? Who isn't? And so on. So it wasn't something that, uh, you know, okay, it w- wouldn't have made a difference if you, the Supreme Court waited another three, four, five days. I think it really was a very urgent situation. I will say that I hope that Supreme, the Supreme Court and other courts also realize other situations can be urgent as well and don't consider their job to be nine to five uh, such discrimination uh, is obviously not acceptable. But in this case, I completely understand, and I support that the court opened at night uh, for this purpose. I just want to give one more example that might help clarify this. Uh, for some people, uh, I, it, the you know question that you know unlawful, unconstitutional steps are taken every day. What's the big issue? But here, the question was. Something far more than that. And this is why I say that you could make a case that it wasn't just an unconstitutional act of the speakers or the former prime ministers, but it went to the, it could be considered subversion of the constitution, is because how a government comes into being and how a government uh, loses its power, uh, these are two of the most fundamental questions that your constitution decides. So, for example, if the prime minister now Uh, You know, assemblies, we have a fixed uh, tenure uh, of our assemblies in the constitution. If the current prime minister says, no, I don't want to call elections. I don't want to leave uh, because I fear there's a conspiracy against me. Can you give the prime minister such powers? You cannot, because if the constitution clearly says that assemblies will cease to remain after a certain time period, or in this case, that the prime minister will cease to be the prime minister if the vote of no confidence is passed. These are questions that are—they uh, go to the root of what a constitution is there for. They are that integral to our constitutional framework, to the functioning of the state. So I don't think it's a routine unconstitutional act that happened. It was important enough for the Supreme Court to step in and uh, to ensure that its order was implemented. Parliamentary supremacy. Now, I think uh, parliamentary sovereignty is very important. Judicial independence is also very important. However, different institutions of the state also have to check powers of the other institution. So while we do have separation of powers, we also have checks and balances. Uh, And now, I mean, this is something, again, that is part of propaganda more, and I don't think it has too much legal merit, the argument that the Supreme Court violated parliamentary sovereignty, because it is clear, even the former Attorney General stated, that unconstitutional acts or illegal acts of the speakers are not protected by Article 69, which preserves parliamentary sovereignty. In this case, I think the case was clear, that the Speaker's conduct was unconstitutional. In that case, it makes complete sense for the Supreme Court to step in. And this, again, the interpretation of Article 69, this is not the first time this has happened. We have jurisprudence, even from the past, where the Supreme Court has held they can interfere uh, and they can hear challenges to the Speaker's rulings and decisions where they violate the Constitution. Um, So for me, this is not... uh, it's just being used as propaganda. And we have to be very clear, I believe, and I'll end on this, that there are some real issues, but most of it are propaganda. And they're just issues that keep uh, the, the former ruling party keeps raising to stay relevant, to keep give, giving fodder to its supporters. And unfortunately, we all sometimes, it's it's a question how much these uh, conspiracy theories or these uh, such propaganda should be engaged with because sometimes it's important to rebut it but also sometimes the more you engage with it uh, the more life you give it the more credibility you give it so i think this for me is is a very important question at this point because uh, what is happening right now that the the parties that are in government now who in the earlier 2018 elections they got nearly 70% of the vote uh the the PTI is calling them all traitors and they're saying they are agents and they conspired with the United States to overthrow the PTI government uh, again should this be pro- this propaganda be engaged with should it just be uh, you know um uh, not be given any legitimacy any credibility Th- these are questions that that remain unanswered and i think uh For me, it's 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 a difficult one. To what extent, when do you stop engaging with something that is clearly a propaganda? And this issue of parliamentary sovereignty also, I think, falls into that category because our jurisprudence is clear. The the lawyer, former attorney general, representing the government himself, did not take this position that parliamentary sovereignty is is being, uh, uh, you know, usurped uh, or interfered with by the Supreme Court. But of course it, it suits their narrative so they're going to keep on uh, you know talking about it.
1: Thank you, Rima. Um, May, I'm so sorry it took so long to come to you, but like can you tell us about the political context for Imran Khan's ousting? A vote of no confidence has never been successful in Pakistan in the past. So was this expected and say if we hold if we move if we had moved forward with immediate elections, do you think Pakistan has the capacity to hold national elections as a, at such a short notice?
4: Uh, thanks, Aiman, and uh, and it was uh, yeah great listening to Rima lay out the issues so uh, clearly and so categorically. Um, and and Jibran, well, I uh, I think uh, there are a couple of things that sort of are worth mentioning. If you're an alien who's dropped into Pakistan, uh, you know, just at the start of April, and you're told that the sitting government has, uh, you know, um, at that time, which was the PTI government, had a sort of a you know a razor thin majority. Uh, which it was, was, which was held together through uh, you know a bunch of uh, other smaller political parties, and its own sort of uh, you know strength in in parliament was uh, was about 150 odd uh, out of a parliament of 342. Uh, and, and uh, then it becomes very sort of plausible to imagine that it could be a case where sort of you know the largest party ceases to hold uh, the confidence of of the majority of the parliament. And that its allies, you know, for any reason are sort of, you know, they, they may sway uh, from one end uh, to another or, or another party may be able to sort of pull the requisite numbers uh, together, which would be 172 in this case. So I think uh, as far as sort of a, a decontextualized look at what has happened would tell you, it, I think it's, it's, it is plausible that, that a vote of no confidence could have happened. Uh, and I think what's also worth mentioning is that Imran Khan was elected as prime minister with the thinnest majority for any prime minister since 2002 uh, which was uh, Zafrullah khan jamali under uh, uh, obviously the dictatorship of, of, of general musharraf so i mean in that case i think uh, the the how part of of uh, you know of, of, of uh, you know where this, this entire process is fairly clear and it, i think in in that case it was something that that could have happened now i think what we oftentimes struggle to sort of have a clearer explanation of is why did this happen at this particular point in time? Uh, How did the opposition manage to sort of, you know, resolve its uh, internal uh, differences and sort of, you know, get together on a single point agenda, uh, which was the ouster of, of Imran Khan? And there, you know, you can have, sort of any set of explanations some of which are more plausible the role of the military establishment and its sort of you know uh, withdrawal of support for the for the for the government uh, due to sort of internal conflicts uh, with with the government at the time has played an instrumental role uh, and then obviously just good uh, you know uh, politicking on part of the uh, of the uh, of, of of the opposition in getting the numbers together and sort of creating a consensus on, on, uh, on ousting the government. I think those are uh, important factors. And I, and I sort of really want to stress this because, uh, you know, with, with the way that sort of the conspiracy narrative has, has, is being sort of mentioned, and, and, you know, we still haven't seen any evidence of, of a conspiracy uh, in action uh, so far, I think what's worth mentioning is what are the internal dynamics that allowed this no-confidence vote to actually happen, and I think the internal dynamics are very, very clear. That you had a party which had a razor-thin majority in parliament, uh, was being held together by its allies uh, that refused to engage with parliamentary processes, and that continuously uh, sort of uh, you know uh, denigrated the opposition, refused to form consensus on key uh, parliamentary and legislative issues such as electoral reform. Uh, and uh, refused to sort of pay heed to uh, some of the, uh, the the requests and, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, whether ibran Khan calls it blackmailing or, or whatever it was of, of their own uh, sort of, you know, allies at the time. And I think if you take all of that together, then it sort of starts to make a little more sense as to why this happened uh, with uh, in the way that it eventually did. So, yes, our history has shown that a vote of no confidences are, you know, rarely have have actually never been successful. Um in the past, against a prime minister, but they've always existed within the constitution. Uh, it has always been the only constitutional way uh, to remove uh, a prime minister. In fact, I think it's very good uh, that this particular constitutional mechanism was used rather than uh, than something else and other forms of palace intrigue, which have been used in the past, uh, you know, to to ouster uh, prime ministers, including those that have been handpicked by by military dictators uh, themselves. So I think that much is uh, I think that much is is quite clear so you can't sort of I don't think it's a unicausal phenomenon uh, or a monocausal phenomenon I don't think that you can have one uh, particular explanation for why it happened and the manner in which it happened but I think the numbers uh, as well as sort of you know parliamentary processes uh, that existed are are central to understanding Why this particular uh, event unfolded in the way that it did. Now, on to the second point, which is your uh, issue regarding uh, can elections be held? Now, elections, constitutionally speaking, after an assembly is resolved, uh, uh, prior to its actual sort of uh, uh, point of uh, expiry, uh, can be held within 90 days. They should be held within 90 days. Now, That is the constitutional mandate of the Election Commission of Pakistan. Uh, In uh, our case, there is an added layer of complication, which uh, I I mean, I don't want to get into the technicalities of it, but uh, it is partially based on the last census that was carried out in 2017 uh, in Pakistan. Now, uh, under election law, uh, if a census is carried out, um, uh, uh, you are mandated to create new delimitations. Uh, and to ensure that the uh, proportion of population and constituencies allocated to each province are according to that new constri- uh, to that new census, uh, because the census was held in 2017 and it wasn't uh, officially accepted till much later, the constitution was amended to create uh, a provision uh, for a uh, for, for new delimitations based on provisional results of the 2017 census. Now, since 2018, and this is another example of Parliament being sort of largely defunct during the past three and a half years. Uh, that since 2017, we've had, uh, you know, very gradual approval of the census figures that came out in 2017, uh, over the preceding uh, year and a half. Uh, And since then, uh, there has been no movement to formally notify uh, the census results and to formally notify the new constituency demarcations based on those census results either. Uh, The Election Commission of Pakistan's position is that they've sent out 16 letters Uh, to uh, the government asking them to formally notify the process of delimitation uh, to formally uh, sort of uh, provide resources for for the same Um, but it refused to do it Uh, and instead it decided to go into a new uh, census uh, exercise which would have meant another round of of, of delimitation eventually when those census results would have been approved. So now we're in a situation where these current census with the previous census results have to be formally have been formally notified and you need fresh delimitations based on that so that you are able to meet the constitutional requirement uh, which currently exists and the ECP has given a timeline for that delimitation exercise and it says that it should be ready uh, by uh, late October in which case the earliest that we can see elections happening would be by November or December so uh, I think that is again it uh, this in itself is a is a bit of a sort of a uh, I I would say it's not a legal lacuna but it's it's certainly a problem given that the constitution asks for election within three months after an assembly has been dissolved but because there is no urgent need to dissolve the assembly and because we have a new government which commands the majority of the house as it stands so far uh they we can very well sort of take this up till november to ensure that the delimitation process is uh carried out fairly now what will happen in that interim time period obviously is going to be politics right so there you will have a party That is out, which is asking for early elections, which is going to uh, talk about a conspiracy, which is going to talk about sort of collusion and incompetence of state institutions in in sort of preventing early elections from taking place. But as far as our legal and constitutional position is concerned, uh, I think, uh, you know, we there is there is a fair degree of clarity uh, that uh, elections can be held uh, as long as sort of all of these precursor requirements are met uh, and that it is happening within the time frame. Uh, that is given uh, under the constitution itself.
1: Thank you, Umair. um I'll open my next question to all three speakers, and it's a two-pronged question. Um, Imran Khan's allegation that the U.S. was involved in the overthrow of his regime, how has that been received by A, the media, and B, the public at large? And then how does this impact Pakistan's already kind of tumultuous relationship with the U.S.? So anyone can take this question, whoever would like to.
4: Uh, Reema, why don't you go ahead first, Reema or Jibran, and then I'll sort of, I'll join in a, in, a, in a bit.
2: Okay, I'll speak about the media. It really frustrates me that a lot of people who are anchors, commentators on the media, and I won't speak about politicians right now, they cannot take clear positions on issues. And on this particular issue, I think for me, it's as clear as day or night that there is no foreign conspiracy. Now, of course, the U.S. has a history of regime change. And of course, the U.S. has um, been involved in and interfered in domestic politics of various countries. But that does not mean it happened now. Uh, There is no evidence of it. And when someone makes an allegation, they have to present evidence. Only then do you believe them. You can't just say, okay, they've made an allegation, now the other party has to prove themselves innocent. And this is what I see happening a lot in the media, that people are needlessly creating confusion, giving uh, meat to this clearly false narrative that does not exist, giving weight to it, giving legitimacy to it. And also, a lot of people are in awe of the fact that Imran Khan was able to create this narrative. And because they remain in that state of awe, they are not able to, to see how dangerous and destructive and problematic this narrative is. For me, uh, using allegations of traitor agent, as well as using religion um, as to, to critique your political opponents or to call into question uh, you know, their faith or their loyalty to the state, these are two red lines. And I believe they have been crossed uh, in this case and I would have expected the media to take a more a stronger line on this. But there are very few people who are doing this. Most of them are either in a state of awe and they want to focus on the fact that it has so much pull and Imran Khan has um, you know, brought his politics back to life and his supporters love it and his former um, cabinet ministers love it. Or th- some people believe it to be true without any evidence and now they want the opposition, now the government to prove that they're actually innocent. Both of these positions to me are very problematic, particularly at this point, where I think the media can take a stronger position and categorically say that yes, whatever it means for Imran Khan's politics, at least on principle, at least on what proof is there before us, this is complete nonsense. And it is, uh, there is no evidence, absolutely none. There was time, a lot of time before the no confidence motion was moved they, something could have been done, there could have been an investigation, nothing was done. Uh, and we've seen, you know, another, let me just end on this, uh, former the, the allies of PTI, including Parvez Elahi, um, he himself has said, and MQM as well, that when they came to us for negotiations, they did not mention this conspiracy at all. So when PTI was trying to make sure that their allies stick to the party, even then, they did not use this to, to you know, to, to highlight this to their allies. So obviously, this is something they made up later, because it was, uh, they thought it would help. And um, I was reading this article, actually, this interview, and someone who's done work on Trump. And it was pointed out that, you know, some people who are with leaders with autocratic tendencies, they, they don't want to leave office. They want to appear as heroes all the time to their voters and supporters, and they love playing the victim. So I think that is what Imran Khan is doing with this narrative. He is showing his, his uh, supporters, his voters, that only he cares about the country, only he is independent, and uh, he is still a hero. And how it is he has been wronged uh, of his right to rule or for, for five years uh, and he's playing using this victim card and of course in pakistan since anti-americanism sells there he's using this as well this sentiment to to get more people out on the roads and to support him so for me it is very clear i wish more people in the media took this position
4: uh, I just want to sort of add on to uh, Rima's point by focusing on how public opinion has generally taken on uh, this particular issue. And in the in the days that the no confidence motion went through, uh, and obviously uh, you know to 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 a couple of weeks ago, uh, we've only had a couple of uh, you know countrywide, nationally representative. Uh, opinion polls uh, carried out on on this particular question, and and one of the opinion polls was carried out by Gala Pakistan, and their basic question was how uh, why do you think Imran Khan uh, uh, has been removed, uh, and and what was the reason for his ouster, and uh, the the two most uh, popular reasons were uh, because of inflation, uh, and the second was because of foreign conspiracies. But what is interesting is that nearly sixty uh, percent of the country. Uh, uh, a nationally representative sample uh, said that it was because of inflation, and only thirty uh, percent uh, accused uh, the ouster of being because of uh, foreign conspiracies. While ten percent sort of gave other reasons. Uh, but what is I think really stark, and what needs to be sort of I think which really underscores uh, you know uh, an important point about the Imran Khan political phenomenon and the PTI as a political party in this country is that if you split the sample up by education. And you look at uh, what the views of people were who had less than twelve years uh, of formal education, so less than the intermediate uh, degree in in, in in the Pakistani uh, school system. Sixty four percent said that Imran Khan's ouster was because of inflation, and twenty six percent said that it was because of foreign conspiracies. Whereas, if you go with uh, with respondents who had a degree of, of of twelve years of formal education and above, uh, the figure gets flipped the other way. So it's almost 60% saying it's because of foreign conspiracies and and the rest uh, saying that it was because of uh, inflation. And I think this is telling because uh, we know from other uh, research and from the analysis that we have that the media market in Pakistan is skewed towards urban centers and that it is skewed towards uh, socioeconomically better off households, a household where it is more likely for people to have an FA or an intermediate degree and above. So, Brima's point is actually quite telling that uh, because of a lack of clarity in the media, where different sides have been fairly partisan in terms of uh, in terms of their treatment of this, uh, of, of, a, of, a, of a conspiracy and, and obviously not being uh, forthright and, and categorical about sort of, you know, the lack of evidence there. It really has shaped, and along with obviously Imran Khan's own politics, it has shaped perceptions, especially in large urban centers. Uh, and with uh, what we consider to be the PTI's core demographic, uh, which, is, uh, uh, which is obviously uh, urban, educated, uh, middle income. Uh, and above groups. Uh, and just the last point on this is which is actually quite telling in that in the two weeks that these two opinion polls have actually been held the number of people who cite foreign conspiracy as a as a reason for the ouster has actually gone down a bit. So it's gone down by about 2% and it'd be interesting to see that with the latest statement coming out from the National Security Council uh, about uh, there being, which was fairly categorical in saying that there has been no conspiracy to remove the government it'll be interesting to see if that number uh, goes down any further or whether Imran Khan's narrative and through his politics and his public mobilization, it manages to retain, uh, you know, this 30 to 35% uh, figure uh, that we are
3: currently uh, seeing. Um, can I add something?
1: Sure. Yes, please.
3: Uh, okay. So first, the uh, discussion was going on that, you know, why the VNC succeeded and everybody has their own view on it. Uh, my view simply means uh, that if you see uh, that military has been a constant power in Pakistan. But it's been a wave, high tides and low tides. And it's often been seen that when military has been a fix, it has a sought safe exit from democratic forces. After the 1971 war, it uh, sought safe exit and hit between Zulfiqar Ali Putto. After Bain assassination and the lawyers' movement in 2008, it uh, hit between uh, the Charter of Democracy and asked them to take lead And now again, because Imran Khan was brought with a lot of fanfare and with a lot of obvious military intervention and influence, and they were said to be uh, literal fanboys amongst high-ranking military officials of Imran Khan, uh, he was not able to deliver on the promise And uh, more than these rallies and more than surveys, I believe by-elections are the most telling thing. And a series of by-elections in Punjab and elsewhere were indicating that parties belonging to the opposition are gaining far more popularity than the then-incumbent government. And it was seeming fairly obvious that if things go as they are going in 2023, Imran Khan may not be elected. Whereas the current army chief was being held responsible. The narrative built against Imran Khan actually started against the army chief. He was being called the selector and he was being called the puppeteer. And then we saw that this whole narrative then came about as the tenure of the army chief is coming to an end. The narrative shifted from the selector to the selected and the army was absolved by the very people, Mulana Fazul Rahman, Nawaz Sharif and Bilawal Bhutto, who were accusing them of intervention. They started calling them as neutral. And of course, an um, example in the form of the trial of Perez Musharraf is also in the recent memory of army. They don't want to cross a line uh, beyond a certain degree because they know that they can also fall prey uh, to the same tactics. Um, uh, what goes around comes around. Uh, but... Currently, uh, what also needs to be seen is that why the U.S.? Uh, because uh, previously, when Imran Khan was uh, uh, campaigning for the 2018 elections, the popular narrative was that Nawaz Sharif is Modi's friend, uh, Nawaz Sharif Modi ka yaar. So why not an Indian conspiracy? Or why not an Israeli conspiracy? Because along with the U.S. conspiracy, these things are part of our collective political memory. Uh, leaders as the... Uh, Dignified, uh, And uh, amongst uh, the founding members of Pakistan, uh, Fatma Jinnah was uh, accused of being a foreign agent. So again, and Benazir was often uh, the term darling of the West given to her by the US media was often against used against her. So again, Imran Khan did not reinvent the wheel. But talking about the US or talking about it to such a degree also hit the new neutral player. It also hits the army. Since the army has been the constant the relationship of the Pentagon or the White House with Pakistan has been constantly with the army. We cannot forget that U.S. spends billions in supporting dictators in America in Pakistan and only a few millions in supporting democratic efforts. Not that we are looking for any aid for, from them for that purpose. Uh, but the relationship with the army has been a constant. And we saw that when Imran Khan was still in power, suddenly we saw the military playing the role of foreign uh, minister. Um, and giving and uh, commenting on a foreign policy when they condemned the uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia and called for the Russia to retract and call back its troops. And so that was Army already mending the relationship when Imran Khan was very much in power. Uh, now currently, uh, the problem with the incumbent government is uh, the old United opposition, which is now the United Government, that they seem to be suffering from confusion in the face of this new propaganda, which has been propped up by Imran Khan. There has been certain confusion within the ranks of the incumbent government. Calls for early elections have been heard um, on the floor of the parliament and also it seems to be a little afraid. Certain populist measures by Imran Khan like allowing subsidies, unreasonable subsidies, given our economy on petrol and other things, uh, those have not been reversed as yet. Uh, Talks are going on, indicators are going on, but the first uh, instinct of the government was to keep those measures in. So there's a certain amount of fear in them as well, um, because that's at least how they are perceiving uh, this uh, uh, propaganda or whatever campaign Imran Khan is running. So uh, currently, uh, the military has taken a back step, but they remain a constant and they will build back their uh, influence. And uh, that's a real challenge for democratic forces and political parties in Pakistan, along with the fact when I talked about the confusion and fear amongst the ranks, of uh, uh, the uh, current government. And when I earlier said that by elections or elections are a better measure than just uh, uh, the rallies, um, during the time when Imran Khan was uh, on his way out in those last two weeks, a second phase of elections happened for the local governments in KP. And as opposed to the first phase, uh, PTI pretty much clean sweeped those elections. So that was another telling indicator that is Imran Khan's narrative being perceived received well by the masses or not. And it went in Imran's favor. So uh, this confusion and this fear is going to be a challenge for the current government. Uh, the military is going to take its time when it, before it starts its interventions again. Uh, things are going to be hunky-dory between them in the meanwhile. Uh, any tough measures, any extreme measures, uh, even though legal, even though constitutional against Imran Khan, like, for example, if he's the party was found guilty in the foreign funding case and they move a reference against the party, that will not be received well and people often sympathize with the underdog. And he is out of power, so he falls under that category. Uh, But at the same time, another challenge for the incumbent government is also uh, the building relationship with the masses vis-a-vis the constitution and democracy. Uh, The constitution cannot just be defined by parliamentary procedures, the rights and powers of the speaker, how a a resolution is to be tabled, how it is to be voted upon, how a prime minister elects and leaves. The fundamental rights... The the chapter regarding fundamental constitutional rights, that's the lived experience of the masses of the citizens with the constitution. And um, the uh, the current government needs to ensure that not just when ensuring rights of its own voters or of people at large, but also ensuring that if any witch hunt of uh, workers and members belonging to PTI is being done and being done by our security agencies, they should be halted because that will also not fare well. And this whole notion and, of democracy and constitution will further lose its meaning amongst uh, the eyes of the citizens and the masses. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jibran. Um, I will direct my next question to Omer because you closely follow like uh, political developments on local politics. Um, Imran Khan's attracting major crowds in his public rallies. Uh, is that somehow reflective of how he'll do in the general elections? Because the last time around, you know, he had military support. Um, PMLN was in disgrace. PPP didn't seem like they have the kind of infrastructure required to win Punjab. So it clearly, they were the favorites when it came to the 2018 elections. Now that, like, you know, things have shifted and the military has pulled back support, among other things, um, you know, like his footing in Punjab doesn't seem very strong either. Um you know, PMLN is on the rise again. Uh, there is coordination, there's coordination between opposing parties. How do you see, um, like, the current kind of crowd that Imran Khan is attracting for his rally is reflected in the elections that he's claiming need to happen immediately?
4: Um, uh, so thanks, Eman. I think uh, uh, there are a couple of things which are uh, which are not contestable, which I think need to be sort of laid out right at the start before we delve into any sort of uh, analysis of elections themselves. Uh, the first is that Imran Khan and PTI are the dominant uh, party in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Uh, that has been borne out, as Jibran mentioned, by the second phase of the local government elections. And they're sort of a two-time incumbent. They are deeply popular. Uh, they have support from across different socioeconomic groups in that province. Uh, and across the entire province, you know, not just in the Peshawar Valley, uh, but also uh, both in uh, increasingly in Hazara as well, uh, in Malakand division, as well as in the south. So, KP K- K- KP, Imran is in, a, is in very good shape. And uh, if, even if you look at the opinion polling data on Imran's ouster, uh, uh, you know, in recent weeks, it shows that KP has consistently sort of sided with Imran Khan and is against, obviously, his removal and is calling for early elections. Uh, a, a similar analysis can be carried out for uh, Karachi. Uh, I think Imran uh, and PTI are, uh, are quite popular. Uh, especially in uh, in uh, neighborhoods with uh, in in areas and constituencies with large Urdu speaking populations, uh, as well as in those uh, which have uh, uh, you know large Pashtun migrations as well. So I think uh, in Karachi, Imran's position is is re- reasonably strong, and I think one of the reasons why the MQM left uh, uh, the government was because uh, it was actually sort of in its uh, political interests uh, to leave the government and join the opposition simply because its own political future uh, in Karachi uh, is at stake. So I think with these two things, uh, uh, you know, it's fairly clear. But uh, because of the way that Pakistan's population distribution works and obviously the historical uh, you know uh, prioritization of Punjab, uh, you know, as the politically most salient province. I think the, uh, at the end of the day, it really comes down to what will happen there. Um, Imran's rallies are no no doubt very impressive. They're the largest. His party is the is by far sort of you know maybe uh, the Tehreek-e-Labbaik gives him some competition bringing out people, but the party is certainly better than other mainstream parties in mobilizing its core voter. What you pointed out rightly in 2018 was that the stars were aligned for the PTI, and with that entire alignment. Uh, what we saw was that the PTI was able to get around 31%, maybe 32% of the total vote, uh, and it was able to do uh, uh, you know reasonably well in Punjab. But on uh, in in those areas of Punjab where it relied on powerful uh, dynastic uh, entrenched rural elites uh, to win elections, which we call electables in local parlance, right? The map of Punjab in 2018 is very clear. It shows this quite categorically that in areas uh, which are more urbanized, which have um, you know, uh, greater uh, sort of uh, uh, unattached sort of voters, so to speak, the PMLN did reasonably well, whereas in the more rural, Uh, And sort of uh, southern and western parts of the province, which are, uh, you know, where politics is largely done on the basis of uh, rural uh, factions and and electables, that's where the PTI managed to score most of its seats. Now, uh, the key question uh, that one has to ask ahead of the next general election is can Imran Khan sustain uh, that uh, particular political arrangement with local electables uh, in uh, obviously those uh, rural areas in the south and west of Punjab? Uh, that I think right now is a question that we would sort of if we were to speculate we think that that's going to be difficult uh, because we've already heard stories about sort of you know uh, turncoats and people sort of uh, angling for uh, tickets for from from the from the PMLN and they're no longer sort of interested in contesting on the PTI platform there are sort of already news of attrition and people leaving so what that really leaves us to to think about is uh, is Khan's mobilization at this point and obviously the PTI is uh, mobilization and its sort of, you know, uh, stake in, in, in the political system, uh, in 2022, is it sufficient to sort of move a large swing of voters, a large mass of voters away from the PMLN in uh, areas of central Punjab, in the urbanized belt of, of the GT road, uh, and, and obviously, uh, you know, the south and the west of the province as well, uh, towards itself? If it is able to do that, then maybe there is a path towards re-election uh, for Imran Khan. But it would be quite unprecedented in some ways, because we haven't seen this kind of a wave election in Pakistan since at least 1970. Uh, and uh, it would certainly be sort of, you know, a, a significant political achievement. As, as things stand and the way that showed both by-election data and polling data shows, it shows the current government, which was the previous opposition, ascendant uh, politically and electorally speaking. Uh, and I think uh, what we may be looking at in some ways is a repeat of, uh, if not identically of 2013, uh, in which Imran sort of mobilized large rallies, but was unable to crack the electoral code as far as the province of Punjab was concerned. But maybe uh, somewhere between 2013 and 2018, as far as the PTI's popularity and its sort of numerical strength in, in, Punjab, in Punjab's politics is concerned. So that's, I think, where we are right now. But again, uh, the more, more data that we get, obviously, the more opinion polling, more sort of news from the constituencies once all parties get into mobilization mode, uh, I think we'll get a better sense. Uh, but right now, I think even you know, with all the stars aligned, like I mentioned in 2018, Imran's majority was razor thin, and now with some of those stars having fallen out of alignment, uh, you know, it's hard to see at this stage if there's going to be a massive wave uh, in favor of the PTI that would somehow upend you know the way that electoral politics uh, is 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 carried out.
1: Thank you, Omer. Uh, uh, we seem to be having some problems getting Rima on board again. Um, this is my last question, and I'll open this up to both Gibran and Umair. There is the sentiment about the military has clearly soured amongst the PTI supporters, right? Like we see that in the kind of protest banners that they're bringing to the rallies. But like PTI leadership has refrained from explicitly blaming um, the military support, like the military establishment for their ouster. How do you see the relationship between PTI and um uh, the military going
3: forward? Um, well, first of all, Imran Khan needs that relationship to work out. You see, the thing with Imran Khan is that he knows uh, how to create trends in politics. But uh, the thing with the People's Party and Muslim League Nawaz is that they know the art of politics. They know it's a waiting game. They know there'll be time and they'll be out of power. And they have to reassemble, realign and wait it out and rebuild whatever uh, relationships they've had with the military. Uh, nobody's revolutionary here. They're all taking turns in their own way. So for Imran Khan, time is the biggest factor. Currently, uh, he has created a new trend, but without the supports of uh, political engineers and financiers like Jahangir Khan Tireen or Alim Khan, who was said to be uh, the bankrolling the PTI campaign, or to have direct support of... Uh, Uh, back-to-back support of uh, various uh, high-ranking military officials, especially those heading the intelligence agencies. Uh, Without that, it would be difficult for Imran Khan because he does not have development projects uh, or infrastructure projects uh, like uh, PMLN to rally people around uh, because seeing is believing and uh, or socialist uh, or other uh, projects, uh, welfare projects by the Pakistan People's Party Uh, regardless of all the uh, loopholes and shortcomings, but it's tangible benefit which people can see and feel. Uh, Imran Khan did, of course, uh, introduce certain programs, rebranded certain old ones uh, uh, for uh, welfare, uh, be it the panagas, shelter homes, or the langar khanas, uh, like the soup kitchens, um, or the uh, universal healthcare insurance card. uh, And those, again, with their own shortcomings, would create crisis uh, financially for the government later, uh, but that's besides the point. So currently it's a waiting game, and uh, as far as that relationship is concerned, I think what's more important is for the military to introspect respect now, because for the first time we saw a clear divide uh, between the ranks of military. Uh, the more obvious one was, of course, expressed by retired military officials all the way to left-hand and major generals, and um, speaking out against uh, the policies of the current military chief. And again, by doing so, uh, fortifying this notion, this thought that military is a constant power and intervening power within politics and decides who gets to stay in power and who not. And secondly, I believe another internal crisis uh, or existential crisis was made because uh, just like since the late 1970s till the early 2000s, till uh, the attack, 9-11 attack, a notion or a thought between the military was that um, it is right and proper to support the Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, in the name of jihad, in the name of an Islamic fight. That was the ethos we used to train and whatnot. not and um, uh, revelations about this have been made by military persons themselves. There's nothing hidden about it. But come 9-11 and the global war in terror, suddenly the narrative had to be changed and all those trained fighters and allies had to be treated as terrorists and we had to facilitate the US in taking them down and we saw at that time as well that a lot of high-ranking military officials were court-martialed, were you know, kicked out of the military, some were put under arrest because of that um, conflict which was created and people wanted to pursue opposing policies. Similarly, for the past 10 odd years, uh, a narrative has been built between military ranks that Imran Khan is the promised messiah. He will save us from these two typical dynastic political houses uh, who come in again, uh, hold us hostage, and we have to deal with them because they have their roots within politics so we can create something new. And this guy will come and turn things around with us. And good for us that people uh, follow him and the youth relates with him. And that whole narrative was built. And then suddenly, uh, for various several reasons, primarily in Imran Khan's own government's performance or lack thereof, uh, he had to be, Uh, disowned and the establishment had to become neutral and room had to be created for opposing political forces, not just them. But most importantly, the allies of the PTI government, the very parties which were brought on board by the military, now were at large free to decide and determine their own future and most likely encouraged to go and stand with the United Opposition to help them form the government. So, uh, that is again a crisis, most within the military. That's besides the point, how people are perceiving it. Uh,
4: Sorry, I mean, just to sort of quickly uh, add like uh, an additional point here. I think uh, the split between that, that we're currently seeing, and obviously the PTI high command is not going to egg it on any further. Because they realize that part of their electoral fortunes do rest on... Uh, you know, uh, on at least, uh, if not establishment support, then establishment's neutrality or the army's neutrality, as far as the electoral process is concerned. So I think uh, that much is quite clear, and they're hoping that you know maybe they'll be able to build bridges, largely because the PTI is still uh, fairly popular uh, amongst uh, the uh, the rank and file and even up till the sort of the higher uh, officer uh, cadre of the military. But I think uh what's interesting and what what sort of is is perhaps uh, in some ways quite uh you know is, is a silver lining for pakistan's political future is that now everyone has been burnt uh in the process uh, and, and it really what it uh, what imran's per, per, and and this particular episode shows uh is that it you know uh, performance or or lack of performance competence or lack of uh, competence is not really the telling factor uh, in the establishment deciding, or the military deciding when you know it wants to burn uh, a, a political uh, ally, and and sort of you know when it wants to switch allegiances, it's actually about internal control uh, and 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 you know who gets to call the shots on on major important policy decisions, right? And and I think uh, with the PTI and given the PTI sort of politics and its narrative, it you know seeks to have a more republican unitary. Statist orientation towards politics, you know, uh, a lot of the rhetoric is quite similar to what we've seen in the past uh, with uh, with uh, during, you know, times of military regimes as well. I think there is a natural uh, sort of, you know, uh, alliance uh, uh, between, uh, you know, the military uh, and the PTI, especially military officers and and that particular segment in society. But what is also clear now is that the PTI is no longer willing to play, uh, you know, second fiddle. Uh, to the military as far as decision-making is concerned. And that is, has moved sort of, you know, the, the opportunity matrix for the military, uh, you know, to, the de- to its detriment, because no, it no longer has an incredibly reliable or pliant sort of option in the political space. Right? No one is willing to roll over. Uh, uh, and, and we saw this, you know, even just happening within three and a half years, uh, you know, it took Nawaz Sharif much longer uh, than that. Uh, and uh, I'm not saying that this is some great sort of, you know, great democratic awakening, but the fact that now everyone's been burnt is enough to create some seeds of mistrust of, you know, the degree to which the military can be allowed to encroach upon, uh, you know, issues of, of, of again, so which were ostensibly of the civilian domain.
1: Thank you, Omer. Um, before we close off for today, uh, I would like to take some ending remarks from Rima Umair and Gibran about what does this moment mean for Pakistan politically as Umair said that now that all players have been burnt and also where do you see us going forward considering you know the coalition government will start showing fiss- fissures soon enough the elections are upon us um where do you see like the Pakistani politics moving and um as Umair said now that all players have been burnt thank you
2: okay I can um uh, I can I uh, respond to this so for me, and I, I, I think this is perhaps um, a minority point of view, but I see this as a moment of hope. And let me explain why. I started uh, appearing as an analyst on mainstream media around four, four and a half years ago, which is just before the last election. And the kind of red lines you had and the kind of censorship you had in the media it's completely different from what we have today. It was very clear that the establishment wanted Imran Khan to win and they wanted to demonize the other parties who posed a challenge to his electoral victory in every way possible. Now we don't have any red lines, so to speak. I mean, the kind of freedom that we have now to talk about everything, to criticize everyone and anything without any uh, censorship as such, to me, my own personal experience, it's there's a huge difference between four years ago and now. The second thing is the, the Supreme Court and generally the role of the courts. Four or five years ago, we had a series of judgments by the Supreme Court, but also other courts, which to me are jurisprudentially extremely problematic. And not just me, I think a lot of people who understand the constitution, who understand Pakistani law, They cannot explain legally why those judgments were passed. Uh, One of them, of course, is the Panama judgment, because of which former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif was disqualified, and later, through another judgment, disqualified for life, and later, through another judgment, uh, disqualified from ever heading a political party. These are just three of the problematic judgments. There are many others. Right now, the judgment that said that the previous National Assembly, which the National Assembly is going to be restored, to me is constitutionally perfectly sound. And again, not just my own opinion, I think by and large, jurists in Pakistan agree that this was the right legal constitutional judgment. So the role of the courts to me seems very different today uh, than it was four years ago. Third, NAB, the way other institutions were used, including the National Accountability Bureau. I mean, so many cases that have no merit whatsoever were made against political opponents. Now you don't see any cases against Imran Khan as of now. So for me, it's very clear that right now there is more freedom than what we had four or five years ago. And this project, what people in Pakistan uh, call the hybrid project in which the military uh, leadership um, and others they got together and they wanted Imran Khan to be an alternative for uh, to the other parties for many years. And some people say it was a ten-year project, so that the next army chief would also be appointed by Imran Khan. Um, and that meant you demonize other parties and you heroize Imran Khan. So this took many years, and I have seen it unfolding before me. Um, I've also the kind of attacks people suffered when they questioned this narrative. I mean, you see even today, the kind of trolling, the abuse that people who are critics of the PTI go through, uh, it's horrendous, even now. Um, And so for me, all of these factors show that that is an end to, this is an end to that period. And I welcome it. And to me, it brings hope. Because if you invest so much energy, so many resources to building someone to leave that person must not have been easy. So the fact that, and now Fawad Chaudhry sahab yesterday or the day before said that if our relations with the establishment had been good, this wouldn't have happened. He sort of conceded to this as well that the establishment left the PTI side. Now, what does it mean um, for for military uh, civil relationship uh, relationship in the future, for civilian supremacy in Pakistan, which I think all of us want to see? that's up in the air. I mean, we have to see how it will go. But right now, the establishment has had to retreat. And I think that is something which should be welcomed on its own, for me, at least. Even though, of course, right now, we don't have an ideal situation. Of course, the military continues its uh, human rights violations. Of course, they're going to try and um, assert uh, influence and power where they can, uh, you know as far as w- this government is functioning all of that will happen and there will be constant negotiation there will be this tussle but right now and i think we don't take that time to 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 celebrate or to welcome or to hope because we just start thinking about what next can we fear and what next can go wrong to me this moment is one of hope because i have seen uh, no one you know one year ago Eamon no one would have been able to guess this could happen. Everyone said, okay, Imran Khan is going to be re-elected. There were all these talks of, you know, draconian constitutional amendments to make Pakistan a presidential system, to do away with the eighteenth amendment, all of that was happening. And now a few months in, I mean we 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 have a, a new government. So I think this shows that there's always room for politics there is always room for negotiation and not everything is as fatalistic as sometimes all of us start thinking because the room the freedom to think to question to uh, to to you know a comment to analyze is so little but right now i think there is that freedom and i hope it goes in the right direction um but of course that that remains to be seen
4: i am one of those people it's who it's it's sorry hanijab
3: yeah. Um, agreeing with what Umayy said regarding everybody being burnt and with what Rima said about there being hope in a, in a country of 220 million, there'll always be hope, uh, the political space has opened up. prime, And also because uh, the bitter medicine fed by PTI to the military in the past two, three weeks has now made even the harshest of objective critiques palatable. This is the time to organize, this is the time to mobilize for new political forces, for civil society organizations, to move for structural reforms which actually strengthens democracy. Besides of new political forces organizing to form new political platforms and parties for voters to have new options, what is also most important is to build alliances for a united effort for restoration of student unions, to make uh, the art of discourse common and popular in universities, to make the art of articulation of thought popular and common in universities, it is fundamental that we unite for a for a common cause to make local body government systems stronger and uh, uh, empowered as envisioned by the Constitution that they should have legislative, financial and administrative autonomy so that politics, politics becomes accessible for the common man, not only that more and new democratic players come in within political parties and new stronger political offices coming in with the offices of mayor and U- union council chairmans being empowered and that would also democratize the parties but it would make politics, politics accessible that for new entrants and new aspirants uh, especially from new political platforms or those contesting independence, it's far more easier and affordable and possible in terms of capacity to contest for a local body election as opposed to a provincial or a national assembly. Having contested three elections, I can, to a certain degree, uh, testify to that. And it's also fundamentally important that the classes uh, which whose uh, strength relies on the unity, that is the working class, the labor class, the farming class of Pakistan, they should be allowed to unite because unless they don't have collective bargaining power for their rights and they are broken down into smaller and smaller groups, the development sector alone cannot represent them. The civil society alone cannot help them. And for that... Their unions needs to be better organized, better facilitated under the law and supposed to empower them. So for these kind of structural reforms, now is the time with this new promise of upholding the constitution and new promise of being democratic that reforms are pushed for. and not just those reforms which are which relates to our elections, which the current the parties in power um, wish to seek, not just because of making the elections more free and fair, but also in terms of how they can manage it and access it. So these reforms should also be built so that the system develops us as a whole. So this is a time of hope. And because of that, this is a time to organize and mobilize.
4: Yeah, just to sort of uh, add, you know, just literally sort of the last point on on what Gibran just said. I think uh, the conversation around empowering local governments is essential for all the reasons that he stated. Uh, I think this is now the time to start thinking about you know how do we sanctify local governments under the constitution uh, if there is an amendment that needs to be made you know by the time the next assembly comes through i think that's a that's certainly something uh, that uh, that you know parties need to work towards uh, but i am unfortunately also one of those who who who, who tends to get fatalistic about certain things uh, and you know uh, rima's and devran's points are all well received My only concern right now about the immediate future uh, is on the sanctity of uh, the electoral process itself. And when when I say that, uh, what I mean is that uh, the way that the PTI is currently mobilizing uh, and the way that it's sort of talking about the election commission and obviously the electoral process, uh, I mean, uh, you know, if there is no agreement on what the rules of the game uh, really are, you know, and the rules of the political game and the rules of political contestation, if there is a complete breakdown between, uh, you know, one party... Uh, and and a couple of other parties on the other side, then that really does pose a problem uh, as far as political legitimacy is concerned. And my I think biggest uh, sort of again uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, critiques that I had of the PTI government was that despite it being a, 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 a you know a, a consensual player uh, up till 2018, in the process of electoral reform, has just decided to completely bulldoze that entire consensus uh, for the sake of pushing through uh, rights of overseas Pakistan voting rights for overseas Pakistanis. And EVMs, electronic voting machines, and I think uh, now that these reforms are most likely going to be undone, this is going to be, uh, you know, it's going to set us on another cycle of uh, of of political conflict around the legitimacy of elections themselves. And I think that is uh, that's a that's a that's a pressure point for 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 the political system, uh, and you know, it, it it's a fundamental sort of point that we uh, that really there needs to be sort of at least. Uh, multi-party consensus on that they agree on what the rules of electoral contestation are and they agree on the legitimacy of the electoral process and that is the only thing that I feel is currently uh, you know worth uh, sort of worrying about given the rhetoric uh, that is coming out at, at PTI rallies and the way that Imran Khan uh, is uh, is mobilizing but other than that obviously I think it underscores this entire process underscores political diversity in Pakistan it underscores the resilience of, uh, of of political parties themselves and of the political process, um, including Imran Khan coming out and sort of you know uh, be, you know protesting freely and mobilizing people. I think that it just shows that there is you know uh, that, that 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 politics is quite sort of deeply rooted uh, as far as uh, you know sort of Pakistan is concerned. And I think um, these things sort of you know will, will are, are are naturally sort of against uh, any attempt to sort of coerce or any attempt to impose uh, sort of a, uh, you know an artificial unity uh, on the political system.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Mayor, for that. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us. This was it for today's conversation. We hope to see you again soon in another space session, where we will hopefully engage um, activists and academics from another country and focus on another South Asian country and the political crises and the political questions in the region. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. This is it. Um, Goodbye.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.
2: For more Himal podcasts, go to himalmag.com slash podcasts.